first of all, just some basic stuff. Anselm is the father of scholasticism, fuses Greek thought, particularly Platonic thought. And this is important in several instances. If you think of Platonic thought as controlled by a kind of visual metaphor, it's a closed system, and it's all working within the idea of the mind's eye. I think that everything that Anselm is doing fits a visual metaphor. Now that should make you pause a minute. Is that does that fit with New Testament Christianity? Is Christianity, and this may be a trick question, built upon a visual imaging? Or is it in fact built upon, in other words, when we say faith and hope, Paul and John and others in the New Testament will specifically say this is not by sight, and they'll pose faith and hope as that which is not seeable. Now, it's true there's visual metaphor in the New Testament, but it's a, it, it is a, not a primary thing, and what is meant, you know, it's actually there's a kind of alternative seeing that comes about in the New Testament with hope. You know, hope is what we can't see. It's precisely that. And what we can see, if, you know, if it's kind of believing is based on seeing, well, that gives us a very different alternative world. And so the, the move to Platonism or to Greek thought. Now we could, you know, the question is here, oh, it's that Plato, he messed up everything. But, or that even talking about Anselm in this way. It, we may be making a kind of category mistake in that, no, this is what we always do, that our tendency is to turn to a kind of visual understanding as opposed to a faith understanding. And even our, you know, the way that we operate as human beings, there is a kind of form of subjectivity. You know, think here of First John, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What he's describing is not, oh, one, occasionally that's something we do. He's describing the fall of man and the formation of an alternative subject on the basis of sight. Right? So our problem is partly that we've been captured by uh, vision and we privilege vision. And our salvation then is to shift to privileging the Word of God. And certainly we still have vision, but our vision is, then is informed and directed in a different way. So throughout, everything I'm saying here almost relates to that point, because as we describe Anselm's work, um, what he's really doing, he's giving us a rationality but it's a very particular kind of rationality. It's a Greek rationality based on the mind's eye. The other thing is he gives us the doctrine of divine satisfaction, which is an extension. In other words, he's always working the same program. Anselm is arguing uh, on the basis of reason alone in all of his arguments and even in why a God-man. It's not to say that he doesn't, there may not be, scripture in the background somewhere but his point is not exegesis his point is rational argument so he's going to give us a reason for the death of Christ on the same basis that he's working the ontological argument so the 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 thing here you know this might all seem academic you know this is kind of a fun little game we're playing but Anselm is important because he's so profoundly influential. He's given us the primary doctrine of the cross that we have. And what you're doing in apologetics, this is Immanuel Kant's take on Anselm, is that all of the arguments, in in fact, depend upon the ontological argument. So what Kant says, well, the teleological and the cosmological arguments really depend on the, an ontological, the same sort of ontological shift that you get in the, uh, in, you get it in Anselm in two places. It's there clearly, the very name of the argument is the ontological argument, but it's also there in his cosmological argument. 
he does the cosmological argument. He begins from ordinary things, you know, and he, he talks about, you know, I, I think his argument is a, is a horse and the fastest horse, and then you get up to the bestest horse, you know, that there is. Or the, But at some point he says that, that we cannot imagine the best. We cannot mentally achieve the good. And he, he posits this thing, and he says that the world in comparison to this absolute good is as nothing. Now, this may sound like a minor point to you, but uh, he's doing a bottom-up argument in the cosmological argument in which he's going to think away the world and arrive at this ultimate good, but what you've got is two negations. You can't, it's not anything of the world, and it's something that cannot be thought. What have you got? You've got nothing. And he will say that. We've only got darkness and nothing and negation. And in the ontological argument, he incorporates, he feels great satisfaction with the ontological argument. You've done enough with it. God is something, then which nothing. He's already beginning. He's not beginning with human thought, but he's beginning with, that's the name for God, right? And in fact, he doesn't use the word God. He's saying something, then which nothing. He's giving us this formula in which we can think God. So instead of starting from the bottom and going up, he's starting, it's a top-down argument. And the reason it's an ontological argument, he's presuming in the argument that human thought has achieved an essence or a being or you know the name if you can name god you've achieved god that's really what he's saying now the is kant correct well i uh, uh, that if the teleological and you know cosmological there may be forms of the argument that don't fall into this but i'd say that that kant is correct that the danger is that we'll fall into arguing in a kind of absolute, you know, Anselm throughout is talking about a logical necessity. And I don't know if you've played the game yet with the argument, but it captures you, it traps you. The argument kind of backs you into a corner until there's only this greatest thought, something then which no greater can be thought, that you have to think. But what are you left thinking when you're left with this greatest thought that can be thought? Well, you're just left with his sentence. You're left with his formula. And the formula doesn't refer outside of itself. Think of the language something, then which nothing. What does the something refer to? It refers to the nothing. What does the nothing refer to? It refers to the something. That is, the sentence is a self-reflexive sentence. Anselm is not... Anselm, in many ways, is quite brilliant. Because what he's recommending is precisely this self-reflexivity. So when we're doing these arguments, you might think, well, that was a fun game. But he's going to turn and say, this is why Jesus died, is to enable us to think rightly. And the ontological argument is a kind of proof that he's saved. It's a kind of proof that he's arrived at being able to name God. Uh, again, we, you know, you could dis- dismiss him, but remember, this is the rationale behind the doctrine of divine satisfaction. Um, with so with Anselm, you know, I, I never know how much to blame it on Anselm. If you were to work this out historically, I'm sure you know that uh, uh, Augustinian thought contributes, and Anselm thinks of himself as a little Augustine. Um, but I think, and, and there may be that element, but I think there may be parts of this that Anselm himself is not aware of, and that is that um, with his generation, uh, there is a fascination with grammar. Theology becomes grammar studies. It's very interesting. So that Anselm is a part of a group of people that imagine that truth lies in language per se. Where are you going to find the truth? Well, you do examination of language. And so, uh, 
he he is turning to language itself, but he's not the only one that will do this. Martin Heidegger, of course, does the same thing. You know that that uh, we we inhabit the house of language. The Augustinian part of this, you know, that Augustine in De Trinitate describes the workings of the Trinity in terms of a psychological metaphor in which God rightly remembers himself through the word. But Anselm is going to take that up in a quite quite literal fashion in which if we can rightly remember ourselves by arriving at the place of the word within, then we can attain to the image of God that we were meant for what he's, what he's describing is that God is fully self-absorbed and we are to be too to be like God, to put it in a kind of crude way. The self-sufficient thinker, thinking only of himself. He's going to think away the world. He says, go into the, to your, he's writing to the monks at Beck, so he's quite literally telling them, go into your room, close the door, and then close the door of your mind, and then empty your mind, of everything else except this thought. Something than which nothing greater can be thought. And he's giving them this formula quite literally as an alternative to reading the Bible. <laughs> he's saying this is just as good. This is a revelation of the same order. So is he trying to put... So you said that you know, God found himself by thinking that was his so is he trying to put man on the same level as God if he's trying to get man to think themselves that's what I would claim now if you said that to him he would say oh no but that's what I would say is that in fact he's saying that being in the image of God is to think you know the way that God thinks but part of the problem is he's made this completely an interior individualistic thinking. Uh, that the Trinity is a Trinity that we contain metaphorically within ourselves. You know, is this Augustine's fault? I don't know whether to blame it on, you know, Augustine or not because I think Augustine was actually doing something a little different. But the way that Anselm will read Augustine is to take the Trinity and use that then as a mode of rational necessity that we can come, we can arrive at our own thought. And you almost have to play the game he's doing here to to get at what he's aiming at. You get it a little bit, you know, this is Rene Descartes. You can probably do it easier in Rene Descartes than you can Anselm. Descartes, of course, does not like Aquinas. Uh, and and uh, does not like Aristotle. But he likes Plato, and he likes Anselm. And so, I think, therefore I am. Um, it's very similar to what Anselm is doing. Your thinking leads to your being. I'm answering your question here partly, Christian, in that who who you know says I am? Well, that's God. Jesus says I am, but Satan also <laughs> says I am. So that when God does it, I think it's okay. God is I am. He is the great I am. But what Anselm is doing is duplicating that possibility. And his whole system then, I think, is a kind of sign of the fall. That you get in Descartes, very obviously, he's going to think his way into being. Epistemology is a means to establishing ontology. But that already describes Anselm. That is, he's going, if you think this thought with me, you can catch a vision of God. But, of course, in seeing God, you've truly seen yourself. You've arrived at your own true identity, your own image. 
Think of what we just did. We just did a little journey here in which, you know, talk, you know, we've been doing First John last night. If you were to talk about being saved and the alternative subjectivity that we have in Christianity, are you going to think of it in terms of this interior capacity of rational thought? I don't know where you would go in Scripture. In other words, what we were saying last night is agape love is the foundation of this alternative subjectivity. That agape is already descriptive of a plurality of persons. And it has nothing to do, in fact, it's a complete rejection of seeing God. John says we cannot see God. No man has seen God. And the insistence to see God, I'm afraid precludes agape love. That's the danger in this form of thought that you're being indoctrinated into in a modern apologetics, I would say. At least in the the, the way that we have it. In other words, what is modernity? Well, you know, is... Rene Descartes is thought to be the father of modernity. What is Descartes doing? I think Descartes is just doing Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, in a, and you know, if Anselm were, you know, if we could save him in some way by saying this is not, but Descartes, he is clearly imagining that human rationality can achieve an absolute. And that's really what we're talking about. Can reason attain to an, a kind of absolute knowing? Well, you know, the question is really, can reason attain God? Anselm, Descartes, modernity, apologetics as we have it, is going to answer that question, yes. And what I would say is, I'm a little suspicious of the God and I'm a little suspicious of the mode because what you're doing in proving God is at the same time proving the power of your thought. If you and that's if you can thank God, what Anselm is literally doing is transporting his thought. The name of God, something then which nothing greater can be thought. Thought, human thought, is contained in the name of God that we've named. Our thought is transported onto the other side of the ontological divide. I think that's the trick. It's there. He already is working this out in the cosmological argument. And he feels greatly satisfied with the ontological argument. That he's finally achieved this shift. Uh, and you know the question, the, the the continuous argument in apologetics or in philosophy is: Does the argument work? Um, oh, I suppose it works to do something, but the question works to do what? You know. And I'm afraid that it works to fulfill a kind of illicit desire. That what is the the uh, he's finding rational solutions within the rational subject. In other words, it's a kind of... By the way, you know, in, a, in both Plato and uh, Anselm and Descartes, anybody who takes up Platonic thought, guess what they have to propose about human mortality? That man has an innately immortal soul. So this is this becomes quite explicit in all these guys. The absolute nature of the thought depends upon getting rid of human finitude and mortality. Do you have access to immortality in your thinking? Well, Anselm says yes, we have to have because that's the only way we can attain to God is that we're created in so there is the positing then of uh, 
a necessary, necessary reason depends upon an absolute reason that depends upon an innately immortal soul. Now, I, as I say, I'm just saying stuff here. I'm just telling you conclusions, but I can, I'll go to Anselm and I can show you where he, he actually says this. Uh, he talks about a natural interiority throughout, a natural language. Uh, and he, he sees, he literally is talking about his own theology as the functional equivalent of revelation. So he will equate the word of man, and by the word, you know, he's thinking here the word of Christ. He's going to equate, equate the divine word and the human word. This again is your question, Christian. You know, does is he saying we are like God? Well, we have a little, you know, not a capital W word. We have a little W word. We don't have a capital B being. We have a little B being. But what he's saying in essence is that we have the word of God within us. That is, what is the word? Is the word Christ a multiplicity of words or a singular word? Well, it's a singular word, right? Christ is one. And uh, so too, is the word in which we are constituted a multiplicity of words or a singular word? It's a singular word. It's the place from which language arises. It's a breath. You know, thinking here of pneuma spirit and so if we're going to arrive at the essence of who God is it is not to be found in a multiplicity of words but it is to be found in the singular word empty your mind cease thinking depart from the world and think this thought something than which nothing greater can be thought or I'm afraid it's the same thing. He's arriving at Christ literally through an interior journey to a place within the human mind uh, that escapes any kind of, you know, normal usage of language and he'll he'll say this we're passing beyond the normal words to this special word and he equates this with achieving the presence of god how do you achieve the presence of god well you come to your own self-presence right where is christian where is the presence of christian it's in my soul So enter in, you know, as long as, even in the cogito, I think, therefore I am. What you need to do is to arrive at the I am, devoid of thinking. Because there is the essence. What is that I am? Kant will say, it's nothing. (laughs) It's a blank spot. And, you know, uh, so again, he's imagining that we are like God in in our very essence. We're not like God. You can't arrive at. I, I'm not saying this isn't the desire of man, and that he's not describing a human desire. But I think in following that desire, that he imagines that it, it's really the sickness of man that he's giving us. He's he's prescribing the death of Christ not to cure the sickness but to attain the end of our desire in and through what we desire. Why can't you attain your own self-presence? Because there's a gap in your will. You can't completely will. You know, you keep thinking, I think, therefore I am. You need to stop thinking. You need to just do what I'm doing now, he says. And the death of Christ then will close the gap in your will so that you're able to attain self-presence. He's giving us a picture of the cross of Christ in which Christ dies to achieve the end of our own visual metaphor. You know, the way I put this last night, is the cross a spectacle for our sight 
or is it a model that we incorporate into our life? I think that's really what we're describing. Is Christ one that we have faith in, or do we have the faith of Christ? What he's picturing is Christ as an object, but it's also the same way that Freud or Lacan pictures, you know, within the human ego, we picture ourselves as an object, right? Think here of, you know, uh, the child seeing itself in the mirror and saying, that's me. Uh, think here of the fall of man. You know, when Adam, they turn from the visual, from the auditory to the visual. What happens with the visual? Everything gets objectified. They're ashamed. They're naked and ashamed. They're ashamed of one another. They're ashamed of themselves. They're alienated from God, from one another, from the world. And Adam's first sentence, I ran, I hid, I was, you know, the four repetitions of the word I that Paul is going to take up in Romans 7. So what is, what's happening? I think a, a summation of what is happening is to say they've fallen into uh, the privileging of sight over the privileging of the word of God. And Anselm is giving us a logical argument and the reason for the death of Christ based upon what he calls the desire. God, I pray that I might see you. That's the beginning of the ontological argument. I pray that I might see you. He's pursuing you know, what becomes in the Catholic Church uh, the, the beatific vision. Are we to pursue the beatific vision? Well, John says that we don't search for a vision of God outside of the sight of Christ. We see God in Christ. Here's a quote from Anselm. If you are everywhere, why then, since you are present, do I not see you? But surely you dwell in light inaccessible. And where is this inaccessible light, or how can I approach this inaccessible light? I was made in order to see you. I have not yet accomplished what I was made for. His whole impetus is for a vision, is for sight. I would say that's the wrong thing. That that's you know that is human desire is a visual desire. There was the. Uh... There's a, well, there's another story. Well, I guess I could talk about. So, so there's a. Um, my dad, he goes up to South Dakota uh, for a couple weeks out of every year for, uh, and he works with a, a certain reservation up there, and uh, there are some people that that he encounter up there that uh, every so often they'll do this. Uh, this thing where they they take a a certain kind of herbal drug and they they have a, a string that's attached to a pole and they pierce it through their chest and then they fall backwards and it it's gives a them a vision. And, yeah. Yeah, vision. It's, uh, yeah. And they, so it's like a spiritual thing. And um, what I was going to say before that was that I know uh, of a... Um, there's a friend I, I have that, that he told me when he used to do um, drugs... Uh, he still considered himself a Christian at that time, and, and he continued doing drugs. And he's since come out of this understanding, but he continued to do um, this certain kind of drug because he would have visions when it happened, like like he'd have hallucinations, and it's, he, he said it made him feel closer to God. And so, like if we're if we're aiming for a vision, we could essentially do that as well, and it would it would accomplish almost the same kind of thing, you know. I think that's it, that uh, the mystery of God and uh, the mysticism of pagan religions have been confused. Anselm is a mystic. He's a monk, right? He's a different kind of mystic. He's a rational mystic. 
but he's still a mystic. He's going to, where your friend takes drugs, Anselm's going to take reason. He's going to use reason and language to achieve a kind of experience. And I really believe it's the experience beyond that he's talking about. Uh, I mean, he says this, My understanding is not able to attain to that light. It shines too much and my understanding does not grasp it. Nor does the eye of my soul allow itself to be turned towards it too long. So what he says is that he sees darkness and absence. The absence of God is taken for the presence of God. It's a very interesting move at the end of the ontological argument. God, what have I seen? I've only seen darkness and nothingness. But God, you are there in the nothingness. So quite literally, he's aiming toward a very similar mystical experience that transports you to a place beyond your capacities to get there, you know, so maybe taking drugs, listening to the Grateful Dead, and uh, or doing the ontological argument will take you to the same place. Uh, Martin Heidegger is uh, uh, he, he's doing a very similar thing, but what they're all doing. Uh, in Japan, I could trace to a very similar thing in Kitado Nishida in Zen Buddhism. It sounds just like Zen. You know, when Anselm's describing what you need to do to even begin the meditation, well, that's exactly what a Zen Buddhist does. Close your door, close, empty your mind, uh, and think this thought. And even in thinking the thought, you're going to eventually get beyond the thought. But you're going to be transported to the, the mystical experience. Now, throughout this, what he's presuming is that if you're doing reason rightly, God's speaking to you in and through these rational proofs. The answering voice of reason, you know, is God himself. Uh... He's uh, like Plato, you know, reason. Uh, the, God is one ontological step removed, but nevertheless, he's seen in and through the argument itself by the rational soul through a rational kind of revelation. And what the absolute is, it's a negative. It's completely in a negative form. The vision is, you know, my understanding is not able to attain it. Um, enter into the inner chamber of your soul. Shut out everything, save God. But what he calls God is this formula. Uh, and uh, he's seeking out God, again, not in community, not in his friends, Anselm was a wonderful friend. You know, as with everybody, I think he was better than his theology. But the place we turn to find God, I don't think is in our own heads. Mm -hmm. Or in and through a drug experience. I mean, you know, if, it, if that were the case, maybe a little LSD would help you in your quest. Uh, a little opium or, you know, peyote. I think the Apache take peyote or... Do they 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 are yeah there's a whole movie if you ever want to see it called a man called horse mm -hmm. and it's this British guy who comes over and he becomes a member of the tribe and he goes through the uh, what the I can't remember it's the Sundance I think like that. Yeah. yeah and they just they tie themselves to the top of the pole and that pierce their chest and then when the skin breaks and they do it until the skin breaks on them. Yeah. But they're clearly in pursuit of a kind of, you know, this is the thing, I, I think we cannot ignore what's happening physically because it is a kind of self-punishing suffering. And I think that's not unusual. If you were to do a psychoanalytic reading of both Anselm or the Apache vision quest, it's always going to be in some way a uh, 
there's an element of masochism to it, a disincarnateness to it. Think here of the the uh, you know the frustration of the visual self. There's two things. I think, therefore, I am. What is our what is our goal? Our goal, what you know, what Anselm's goal is to take two things and make them one. To take the vision of the self and the self and fuse them. Or in Descartes' terms, to take the I think and I am and to fuse them. What Freud or Lacan will say is there's a kind of violence inherent in this thing. The way that you would fuse these two things is to destroy one of them. Think of it in terms of Paul in Romans 7. How do you incorporate yourself into the law? In other words, is there life in the law? Hopefully you know the answer is no, there's no life in the law. But the pursuit of the law, in a sense, is describing this idea uh, to incorporate yourself in the place of the law. So Paul is describing the same alienating, self-punishing, masochistic self-relation that gives rise to sacrifice, gives rise to a kind of masochistic uh, or sadistic, it can go either way, that is not a cure of the human disease. It is the human disease. That's what we're all plagued with. Um, so our goal is not to become self, you know, uh, it, you know, the word ipsaity to obtain, obtain ourself or to become identical with ourself. Um, we can't, you know, what he's really thinking of when he says the word, he's thinking of God as a self-generating presence. And he's picturing us also then as a kind of self-generating presence. If you arrive, you know, the word speaks and all things come into existence. So if we could come to the place in which this breath, this word, the place of the word is, we come to the self-generating essence. What have I just described? You become God. You become innately immortal. Or, in a Freudian term, you become your own father. You know, that you've denied your, your embodied mortality. And that's Freud's Oedipus complex. Everybody wants to be their own father. You would kill the father, marry the mother, you displace the... That is, you would take two things and reduce it to, to one thing. Um, and so that, I in short, I think... Uh, that's what's happening in Anselmo Canterbury. Now, uh, I haven't proven this. I've just said it. I've just said, here's my conclusions. There is a kind of satisfaction in doing Anselm uh, because you kind of get the buzz. It's sort of like doing the sun dance without having to pierce your skin. Uh, I God is something in which nothing greater can be thought. Uh, you know, just just think, let me let me give you a bit of the. Uh, uh, God is something in which nothing greater can be thought. That in which no greater can be thought must be thought to exist. Otherwise, that which no greater can be thought has not been thought. Therefore, God must be thought to exist. Have you thought the greatest thought? If you've not thought that. God exists. You have to think that God exists to think the greatest thought that can be thought. If you think that God does not exist, you've not thought the greatest thought. Therefore, God must be thought to exist to attain to the greatest thought that can be thought. Therefore, God must be thought to exist. I just proved God to you in three seconds. It's irrefutable. <laughs> Certainly this being so truly exists that it cannot be thought not to exist. If you think it doesn't exist, you've not thought it. So to think it, you've got to think that it exists. 
where something can be thought to exist that cannot be thought not to exist. Right? Did you get it? Something can be thought to exist that cannot be thought not to exist, and this is greater than that which can be thought not to exist. Hence, if that which a greater can be thought can be thought not to exist, then that which a greater cannot be thought is not the same as that in which a greater cannot be thought, which is absurd. Something then which a greater cannot be thought exists so truly then that it cannot even be thought not to exist. There, there's a you get a, you get a buzz after a while. I don't, well, maybe, or maybe you just get bored, and confused. Yeah, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm still trying to follow all this. He's arguing with the fool. He says the fool says in his heart there is no God. But wait a minute. If he says there is no God, he's named the name, the thought, you know, that which is no greater. But to say there is no God is an inherent contradiction because you've not thought God. You can't think God and think that he doesn't exist or you've not thought God. God must be thought to exist. In fact, everything else there is except you alone can be thought of as not existing. We can think of ourselves as not existing. We can think of the world as not existing. But this is a thought that you cannot think does, you know, you can't think it doesn't exist or you've not thought it. You alone, then, of all things, most truly exist, and therefore, of all things, possess existence to the highest degree. For anything else does not exist as truly, and so possesses existence to a lesser degree. And he's got a, you know, he's describing a uh, a pure thought. There's no content to this thought. It's just a thought that in the cosmological argument, he's had to think away the world. Something then which nothing greater can be thought. What have you thought when you thought this? You've thought... God. Well, no. the question is, is the God that you just thought with that sentence, something which nothing greater can be thought, is that the God of the Bible? How would you know? <laughs> <laughs> Do not go outward. Return within yourself. In the inward man dwells truth. You can think this thought all by yourself. You don't need any help. Um, once you think the thought, you've, you've, you've achieved an illumination then. You know. Uh, you've achieved a kind of end in itself. There is a kind of, you know, the, the argument is, it, it closes in on itself. Even Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist, he began to work with the ontological argument. One day he's buying tobacco and he, he's walking out of the, the tobacconist shop and he he throws his tobacco up in the air and he says, by Jove, it works meaning the ontological argument. The, um, I was trying to think of, uh, that just reminded me of a verse that uh, you said, uh, in the inward man lies truth or whatever. Um, Jeremiah 17.9, I was reading this the other day, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, we're... We're looking inward to find truth. I have a feeling that we're going to find some some sort of deception, you know, because I don't know if we can really trust ourselves that much. And that's my fear. Yeah, that's my fear is that the turn inward. I mean, just the movement of the of the entire argument. He's describing a kind of essence, a, a reification of human language, the human voice that is a passage beyond ordinary existence that I don't think is the place that Christianity is supposed to take us. Mm -hmm. um, but this is where modern Christianity has taken us. Mm -hmm. Even people who don't do apologetics, that Christianity has become so individualized 
because we've thought of salvation in the very terms that Anselm gives us as something that happens in your head, as something that that you can, you know, it's an inward interior experience. Um, That your own self-relation and your relation to God can be equated. How are you getting along with yourself? And if, you know, Anselm would say that's the key to everything. But actually, what John says, do you love your brother? Uh, you can't see God, but to pursue the sight of God precludes the agape love that John would give us. To what Anselm is doing, I don't know if it works or doesn't work, I'll be honest. And I don't even know what that means to ask this. At some level, is it logical? Does it follow? You know, people will take it apart. But my, my interest is not so much the logic of the argument, but what the argument is doing. And what the argument is doing, it gives us a sentence without content. And that's the name of God. And this thought that would achieve God for us is itself without content. It's a negation of the world. And it's not even in Anselm's understanding an actual vision of God, but it's the uh, actually darkness and nothingness. It's also, it's, I was just thinking, it's also devoid of all context. Like there's nothing to check it against, you know, that you have... Um, like this, this is the reason that we don't read scripture in isolation because we come out with something that you know we could interpret it however we want. And, you know, as long as we trust ourselves to be the only ones that have to be right, and we don't have to check against anybody else, then you know uh-huh. we can have whatever we. You know, whenever Jesus says to Judas, you know, whatever you do, do quickly. We could just say, oh, well, I'm going to go murder somebody, so I should do it quickly. You know. Right, it's yeah, it's a. a, uh, I think it's just a recommendation of human desire as a mode of. I, I, I mean, that's my take on modernity. That modernity is just more of the same. It's just more fallenness, human fallenness, in which you would absolutize the self. Anselm literally does that. Uh, that he's equating the self image with the image of God to obtain the one is to attain the other. Uh, now, I, this is my reading of Anselm. There would be alternative readings. Karl Barth, interestingly, who is you know very anti-natural uh, philosophy, likes Anselm because he thinks that Anselm is working within the realm of faith that he's building on the foundation of faith. But I think with just even the little that I've just said, yeah, the faith, the word that he has faith in, though, is not the historical incarnate Christ, but it's the Christ of an interior word. So he's taken, you know, this is why in very early in the church, and by the way, Anselm, you understand, fits perfectly into a Constantinian Christianity. Monks thinking thoughts by themselves are completely pliable to the principalities and powers that have co-opted the religion. You know, we have we have in Anselm a, a an alternative Christianity that fits neatly into the necessity of a Constantinian religion. Never, never get you know mistake the fact that this is not. Uh, harmless you know this is the thing that people do with zen buddhism is zen buddhism harmless and peaceable no zen buddhists are in fact historically if you go in japan and talk about you know the specific you know rise of the militaristic uh at kyoto university they're precisely the ones who are subject to being pliable under a fascist regime I think the same thing could be said of an Anselmian Christianity that we've all inherited. You know, this guy is, is he, he 
in, in many ways, he's more important in, in terms of influence. And it's not that this little game we just played is harmless. It's that if you get to playing with these little thoughts in your mind and you think that's Christianity, then you can be co-opted for the purposes of the principalities and powers of the world. Because what he's describing Christianity is a departure and you can just sort of do with, you know, well, the powers that be run this world and we're talking about another world. That's, that's the way people describe the church. Oh, it's not political. It's not in you know. It's not really an incarnate thing. So that's always the the fear I get with this is that people will become bored with Anselm before they see the danger of the, this form of thought. Um, I think Anselm. I think Aquinas after him. Whatever the truths might be, nonetheless, the turn inward creates a kind of um, uh, Christianity that we're still living with and that it's been co-opted. It is a Constantinian Christianity.